Keywords in Play. You're listening to Keywords in Play, an interview series about game research supported by Critical Distance and the Digital Games Research Association. As a joint venture, Keywords in Play expands Critical Distance's commitment to innovative writing and research about games, while using a conversational style to bring new and diverse scholarship to a wider audience. Welcome to Keywords in Play podcast. Today in the virtual studio with me is Regina Seiwald and Ed Bollens. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Regina. I'm a lecturer in modern languages at the University of Birmingham with a very deep interest in games and particularly narrative structures in games and also Cold War narratives. And I'm Dr. Ed Bollens. I'm the lecturer in media and advertising at the University of Leicester where I, I run the MA in media and advertising. And my research primarily focuses on paratext and paratextual promotion across the entertainment industries. Today, we're going to focus on your recent collaboration. You co-edit a book titled Not in the Game, History, Paratext and Games, to be published soon with the Gruta. What is your elevator pitch for this book? The elevator pitch for this book essentially is that games are no longer considered a single finite narrative structure. They span a range of different texts and they span a range of different moments in space and time. We are trying to give students and the next generation of scholars the tools with which to successfully connect these different um, texts, essentially in a broader meta-narrative and a broader textual network um, that enables students and scholars to work work in an environment that already has that basis for further development. So we're trying to create um, a standalone textbook that will enable students to kind of read it and then just jump straight in without having to go back to the basic debates. So this is one of the problems that we've been having within the field of paratextual studies is that so many of the works start with introducing what a paratext is and why we should care about paratext and paratextual relations. And We've moved beyond this debate. We've moved beyond introducing what Gerard Jeanette did and how how this matters. What essentially we now need to focus on is where the field is going and how we make sense of that when other fields have had similar debates. And what we're trying to do is to blend together different debates in a way that provides a clear framework for, for analysis, for scholarship, for discussion. We're trying to cut out, frankly, all the the background that people still feel is a necessity because it isn't a necessity. What we're seeing increasingly is a movement away from analyses of games as standalone texts and rather we're seeing work that is now situating games within their critical and creative industries. We're seeing analysis of games as uh, markers in the cultural landscape, moments in time and space. And if we consider the famous phrase, you know, if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? How can sound exist if no one's around to hear it? Then we have to then start to take into account promotional and industrial surround. We need to move away from solipsistic analysis of games. We need to move away from solipsistic textual analysis more generally. And to start understanding that the the output that you pay for, the output that you buy, be it a film or be it a game or be it a book, is 
one object in a much wider textual network. And that wider textual network is the reason that you've bought the book, the reason that you've engaged with the game, the reason that you go to the cinema. So what we're now trying to do is we're now trying to bring together from different disciplines existing debates and research and discourses that have already influenced different strands of study. In, in film studies, there's this idea that you have to now take into account conditions of production. So a film that is released in 2000 might have been on the books right the way back for two, three years prior. I might be influenced by the socio-political implications of the world around it then, not the world around it um, as, as the movie is, is released. The same is true with games. And the, the environment into which a game is released is not the environment in which it was created. What we're now seeing is more and more scholars, particularly students doing dissertations, are now looking and saying, okay, I want to look at how this game was marketed or this game was promoted, or I want to look at industry interviews. And they don't have an immediate go-to framework for doing so. So what we hope in the book is through using different case studies and different approaches, we cover as much as we possibly can about games as a wider cultural and textual network. And we offer, in effect, direct guidance for any scholar, any student looking to work in this area a clear mode of, of reference and a touchstone that allows them to bypass a lot of the heavy lifting that scholars like myself, scholars like Regina, have had to do. You mentioned students a few times in your answer, so that kind of ties into my next question. Who is your target audience or why are students your main target audience? Students are our main target audience because, like Ed said, it's very difficult for students to really find answers about what paratexts are. But let us take a look at the student body. So we don't necessarily have that game studies student, right? So we find game scholars in different departments. So they might be from history. They might do, uh, you know, games design degree, but not necessarily a narrative degree. Or they might be doing something like literature or a language degree. And what we try to do is to synthesize all of those students into one approach. So in our practice as lecturers, we have often experienced that students have some idea of what paratexts are, but they mostly get lost in those convoluted and dated ideas, tracing back to Jeanette, for example. But even, even theories in game studies tend to be a bit convoluted nowadays. So one of the problems we both saw is that paratextual studies is either done with very theoretical tools in that sense, or in recourse to literature. Now, games are completely different to literature, both in their interactivity and in their ephemerality, which also means that we need to change those theoretical approaches and we need to redefine and actually invent our own tools. This means that we first need to address the kind of text we are dealing with before we can actually talk about its paratexts. And then similar to the diverse notion of text um, found for games, so what is a game text? Is it the narrative, for example, or is it the gameplay? The paratext can also relate to many different aspects of the game and the paratext can be really various as well. We might find more conventional ones like say trailers or posters, we all know those, but we also find more medium specific ones so such as avatar creation. That's something that's quite unique to games and those are paratexts that can be addressed in different frameworks. So essentially the main aim of our collection is to show students what games as texts are and what kinds of paratexts surround them. And the individual chapters 
in the collection do so from very different perspectives, such as unpacking the historical side of theories of paratexts, addressing how history is a paratext to games, and how paratexts themselves create game history. And all this is done through looking at case studies, which hopefully help um, the inquisitive student to apply the theoretical framework devised in each chapter to their own research. And I think a key point of our collection is that our contributors are from different fields themselves. So we have historians, we have game designers who really worked in practice. We have people in digital humanities. My background is literature. So we all share an interest in, in paratextuality and games, but from really various perspectives. And that's what we want to communicate to the student reader. So as you already have said, Regina, the word paratext has been understood in a lot of different ways in narratology and then gained further meaning since then in the various disciplines that it has been adopted to, especially in digital games or digital media and analog games as well in recent years. So what do you mean by paratext and how does it differ from, for example, something like transmedia? So I think that this is essentially the main question of our collection and one which we seek to answer from many different perspectives. At the same time, it's also very important to us that we do not lay any claim to finite definitions, you know, the kind of authoritative propositions any critical discourse should try to avoid. Games and gaming are constantly changing and evolving and new paratexts are added with each new advancement. So think about VR, for example. So since we have um, the introduction of VR, we have completely new paratexts and that's really exciting. It's something new every day, basically. So any static definition of paratext would be pointless because the medium changes too quickly. The theory that um, Jeanette developed for the Codex book medium had a much longer shelf life, so to speak, because literature in its, you know, its, in its convention about book form didn't change as quickly. But even if we apply those theories to today's literature, it doesn't really work anymore. We run into problems. Think about ebooks. We don't really have the traditional book feeling, the material book, if we have an ebook, And now we need new definitions of paradox literature. So what we and all our contributors share is a mutual understanding that paradox does not donate a kind of textual category or some kind of genre, but a textual characteristic. So this perspective means that um, something can be paratextual, but it can also be textual. Say, for example, look at the game PT, Originally, it was designed as a playable teaser for the forthcoming Silent Hills game, but Silent, Hill, uh, Silent Hills got scrapped and we ended up with a paratext without the text, actually. So PT was already out in the public, people played it, people loved it. And what happened was that fans talked about it. So there are online forums where people share their gameplay experience, they share screenshots. Um, to share any other fan-made artifacts like fan bits, um, drawings, diaries, anything. And all of those elements are paratexts. So what happened here is that we have something that was originally conceived as a paratext. It lost its text or it never had a text and it became a text itself. So what we can already see here is that the notion of paratext is not something that defines a genre, but it says what a text can be, what it can have, or what it cannot have. It's also something that a text can win or lose. Now, in that paratext differ from transmedia content, which we understand as the relationship between two texts. When a game is made into a film or series, for example, it moves into a new medium and a new textual category. 
it still displays a strong paratextual relationship to the original genre, but it is also a text in itself, which can be surrounded by its own set of paratexts. So this idea of paratext as a textual characteristic underpins our project and something we all share. Thank you. Um, Ed, you were nodding very enthusiastically. Do you have anything to add to that question or Regina's answer? Uh, Regina and I have battled out our notion of what is a paratext quite famously, actually. And there are, there are bars that we're no longer allowed in because our, our, our violence got so, so great. Um, I mean, I, I come from the School of Thought, which is largely influenced by Nick Caldry, in that paratexts are a group of texts, group of things, group of objects linked together by what the reader, the user, the consumer, the audience consider to be a discrete, unified whole. And this kind of comes back to this issue of, I said earlier about um, you know, uh, if a tree falls in the woods. If something is advertised, then we are logically engaging with a, an idea of the text, an idea of the object, before we've actually got our hands on the object, whatever that object may be. Nobody would suggest that you know a trailer or a video game, a trailer or a poster is a game in its own right, but we all acknowledge that they are connected. You know, something for Red Dead Redemption, for example, poster for Red Dead is connected with in some way. And it might be the reason that we buy the, the game, or it might just be something that we recognize as belonging to a, to a group. So it comes back to these issues of kind of categories and, um, and relational uh, situation. But I think, I think part of the, the, the problem that paratextual studies has had is that people get too hung up on trying to classify different relationships, on trying to um, classify different um, uh, characteristics of a, of a medium or of a text. And I think that it's best, to, in many respects, it's best to think of a paratextual network as a family. You might be slightly closer to your cousin, but they are not necessarily as close to you biologically as your, your brother or your sister, but that doesn't change the actual relationships you have with people. And I think that's a kind of a helpful analogy um, when we start thinking about relations between text, because different users will use different things in different ways. Isn't that exactly what makes it unique? That our contributors each come from different fields and they each bring their own notion of paratext to the discussion and that the chapters speak to each other and really engage in, in what you have just mentioned that. I mean, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. At, at, this, at this moment, we have content on, uh, and obviously it's a, it's a work in progress, but we have content on uh, conventions and conferences, on industry notes, on uh, trailers, on um what else what else do we have help me out here um we we have um, uh, uh, flyers and promotional materials for uh, industry training events we have then different sections and what we hope from from anyone reading these case studies is that they can see the paratext that best approximates their own study and they can borrow from that and use that as a kind of a, a framework, even if they're saying so-and-so did it wrong, so-and-so does it and I don't agree with it, because it's academia and we can't agree. We are, academia is built upon discourse and debate. If we all start to agree, we actually lose momentum. We need to kind of ask these questions, why? So part of our hope is that we'll put forward enough case studies that scholars will be able to use them as, a, as, a, as I say, as a touchstone and agree or disagree as they see fit and thus further the field in their own way. And in doing so from different approaches, we've got colleagues who work in games, we've got colleagues who work in history, we've got colleagues who work in film and creative industries. 
from these different fields all coming together on a kind of a um, in a a somewhat abstract manner, and I, I hope no one will take offense at this, but we've grouped these people from different backgrounds and different discourses with different debates and different methodologies and different ways of engaging with something. And they don't always add up. What chapter one will do will be different from chapter three, will be in, in directly opposed to chapter four to chapter five. We need this debate. We need these different approaches because if, if we've learned anything from the past couple of years is that we need to be flexible in how we access things. We need to be flexible in how we collect data. We need to be flexible in how we approach certain topics because that is part of the methodological challenge. It's all too easy to go and find an archive where everything is pre-done, pre-ready and, 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 and there for us. Now we're, at the, we're in the, uh, the moment whereby much of our, many of our paratexts are not available. We have to build our own archives. They are ephemeral. They are disappearing. They are not something that is regularly archived. And this brings us, I think, nicely to the key themes of the topic, this idea of history. Um, because what we have is we have a moment whereby paratexts represent a snapshot, if you will, of any given text in any given moment as part of any given set of discussions and set of um, events you know and we see this we see this all the time um, something something major will happen things will get removed because you can't put that in the in the book the film the video game you can't do this now because it's not culturally appropriate things have changed people die all of this kind of stuff means that what we have then are sort of breadcrumbs if you will breadcrumbs to a house that maybe never was, breadcrumbs to a house that was half built, that is built. Um, students are Hansel and Gretel in this, in this metaphor. I quite like it, to be honest. Um, what we have, though, is evidence of a history. And that history may be hidden from us. We may not realize the significance of something, but we do, in fact, have a history of something. And this kind of brings back to the idea of um, Linda Hutchin the idea of history as metafiction, the idea that we are bringing together different texts and different um, uh, objects to build a discourse, not unlike an edited collection. There is a bit in your introduction or the draft that I have seen, <laughs> um, which talks about how it seems both logical and yet problematic to claim that all historians are to some extent scholars of paratext. So can you tell us a bit more about why you decided to focus specifically on history and paratext, paratext as history, etc.? What is the connection there that you ask the contributing scholars to reflect on? So there's, there's two strands to this, to this question. And I'm pleased you asked it, Betty. The first off is that I just really wanted to annoy historians. Second point is that everybody, everybody is a paratext scholar. Of course, if you ask the sociologists in my department, they will tell you, tell everybody, all media scholars are sociology scholars and around we all move and the philosophy scholars say that the all sociology scholars are in fact philosophy scholars and we all work around this way. Essentially what we have is a couple of competing notions and I make no claims to being a historian. I leave that to my learned colleagues. But what we have is the opportunity that paratexts represent. So paratexts by definition are connected to a central text. That central text, as Regina said, may or may not still exist. 
and we see this all the time. When you take a game, particularly the, a game that is um, on a disc or something, you buy the disc, which has code on it, you put it into a, into a machine, and then it becomes the game. Without the machine, without this assemblage, you just have a disc. And you don't actually have a game. What you have is the potential for a game. So the very notion of buying something is itself to buy sort of a range of texts that point to different stages of its history. You know that a game is, is only really a game, and this, I, I appreciate this is debated, when it's being played, the act of play. And I, I can hear now scholars running to their desks to write me angry emails. That's okay. That's okay. Join the queue. But when we think about the idea of a text as being not just a single game, but an assemblage of different texts, we're talking now implicitly about moments in time and history. Now, Linda Hutchins put forward the idea that history is essentially a discourse around an event. And if we take kind of the almost the back to the future paradox, again, I'm not a historian and I can't pretend to be. If we take this back to the future paradox, this idea that what happens in the past is immediately ephemeral. And what you have then are, are sort of ripples in a pool or, or events that are uh, impacted by an event in the past. Everything becomes a paratext. I don't know what happened at the Battle of Hastings. I know what other people have said at the Battle of Hastings. And that's based on what's been found on the fields in the Battle of Hastings. And that's based on what other people have said about the Battle of Hastings. They've put together a meta-narrative made out of, wait for it, paratext. Text itself is the historical event and the paratext is the evidence that we have. And this is, if you think of it this way, this is how we can, we find that moments in historical um, debates change. Oh, this didn't happen. We're now moving away from this. The historiography is changing. So in part, we wanted to find a way to unify all of our different studies of paratexts, because pitching a book that is entirely about paratexts when you're trying to help kickstart the field isn't going to sell to a publisher, essentially. We have to kind of find a way that is the most accessible. And the most accessible way to link these different cases is through history. Because every paratext is, as I say, a finite snapshot, a crystalline image, if you will, a moment in time. And charting these paratexts is implicitly to chart the history of a particular text. And so by moving away from a single text into a range of different texts that are created at different times, we are implicitly studying history. So we've organized the book with sort of a history as paratext and paratext as history approach. So the first part of the book explores historical games, explores the nature of history as a discourse. It explores the idea that history itself is combined at different moments in time, etc. And kind of indicated that these moments in time are sort of indicated with different forms of evidence. And then this, we shift into case studies that are explicitly not historical, they are paratextual, but they are all implicitly looking at history. They're all implicitly building a discourse about something that is fundamentally ephemeral. The act of play, a game, a moment in time, a training program, a conference. Because nine times out of 10, when a student is looking to study something, the, the event, the thing that they are studying has been and gone. 
What really interests us here is the dual nature of the relationship between history and paratext and also paratext as history. So paratexts not only embed games as artifacts, um, but also our experience often with them in history. So like Ed said, we, we find all those paratexts, all those elements that, that tell us something about the history of a game. So how it was made, how it was created, who wrote its story, who designed its characters, how was it promoted, etc. But what, what we also find interesting is how did gamers, how did players experience them? In what situations did they play the game? Were they happy? Were they sad? Were they anxious? How did it help them, for example? So there's so many interesting forums out there where players really share their experiences, especially during lockdown, you know? I mean, Animal Crossing became so famous because people just met up there and they shared the experience. They, they somehow avoided being lonely. And all of those stories that came out of that experience are essentially paratexts as well. And that's how we as players can write our history. We can tell the world how we experience a game and how it shaped us, how it helped us, um, how it opened a completely new world to us. And so we create our own history through talking about those games. So the kind of history we look at, it's not a history necessarily concerned with historical fact. So we do that as well. If we look at historical games in the sense of games that deal with actual historical events and how they rework it, that's one side of the project we look at. But the other one is a really personalized one, a subjectivized history, if you would like to call it that. So something that's not concerned with, you know, the, the sort we find, the artifacts we can touch, something that tells us about the truth of what has happened. It's something we personally value as as valid as being there and something we want to keep alive as well. With games, the problem is that a lot of them are in a digital space and there is always that idea of it's not tangible. We can't touch a game world the same in the same degree as we can touch a book, for example. So we need to create a few things that really say to the future generations, this game existed. May it be you know, the Lara Croft figurine or something like that, or may it be the Pip-Boy um, if you want to connect Fallout or something like that. So all those artifacts create history for games through our experience. And that's, I think, something that's quite new to the idea because it's, it's something that's so unique to video games that we can actually create our own, own history, that we in that edited collection really want to draw on that and really want to make sure that the process of creating that history from the perspective of the players and also the researchers is kept in our memories. You both co-authored the introduction to this volume and also have a chapter each. So how does this idea of paratext and slash or slash as history relevant to your own work? Yeah, I think since we both come from different fields, we also see paratext differently. Um, we have had more than one heated debate about what is and what isn't a paratext. Um, if there is any value in Jeanette's theory, yes, there is. Um, at shaking his head. And if we can even talk about a game as a text or if it's just made up of many paratexts. So that's actually quite a philosophical question here. My personal background is in a very conventional grounding of narratology. So during my undergrad and postgrad years as a student of German philology, English and linguistics in Austria, I mainly engaged with a quite formalist approach to textual studies. Um, 
I then did my PhD and, and a three-year postdoc in the UK, which really opened up a new perspective to the kind of research I was doing, while I also really kept my own forming years. Um, so I combined the quite taxonomic approach, formalist approach, with this new, I would say, more liberal approach to how you conduct research. And moving from literature to games also shaped my critical thinking. My research interest still largely lies with the terminological history and the diachronic study of games paratext. But I have certainly moved away from taxonomies and stringent definitions very much to, to Ed's um, pleasure, I think, sometimes. But I think it creates a lot of interesting um, discussions between us, which is just what critical discourse is about and, and what um, academic debates are about. My background was in films and film promotion. Uh, and my PhD thesis, available at all good PDF hosting sites, explores the emergence of new forms of trailer so for books, for theatre, for video games. And one of the things that I found was that because of the nature of the commercialised nature of much of the entertainment industries, trailers acted as a audiovisual quote unquote free sample. Of course, they are not a free sample, but they act in that way. They best approximate the medium of the product on offer, but they change so much. And we are reliant on video hosting sites. We're reliant on sites that will collect and store them for us because there are no coherent archives of trailer promotion, promotional um, content for games specifically. And whilst we can be reliant on other people curating and developing these archives, they're not going to be done in the same manner as a scholarly archive. So this is kind of my perspective here is that I ideally would like to indoctrinate every uh, paratext scholar into uh, a paratext scholar come archivist, whereby we actually start to look at the implications of archiving these promotional materials. And this I know is something that you've, you've covered with um, Dr. Wright's work, um, and actually her chapter in this, in this book is pushing forwards the idea of that process of how do you build an archive when you don't know that you're necessarily building an archive, which is really quite fascinating. So, from my own perspective, I'm, I'm very keen to see paratext scholars work together within a, dare I say it, formalized methodological framework where we can start to collect some, if not all, of the paratextual materials that form the history of a particular um, project or a particular text. And, and but for me, the trailers, the audiovisual promotion is by and away the most important thing that we can look at. And there are there are contributors to the to the book that will, you know, take me for yet another bar fight. Um, but that's okay because we need this debate. But for me, the 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 launch information, the the um, audiovisual recordings of um, conventions, of um, announcement trailers, teaser trailers, all these kinds of things are really important because they give us not only an idea of what the industry thinks it's selling, but an idea of to whom they think they are selling, to whom they think they are speaking, and how they want to be seen. And, I, and this is, I'm, I'm paraphrasing Lisa Kernan here, I can't kind of take the, take the full credit. But what we have then is an audio-visual 
text, which is itself a construct and a performance and yet a form of persuasion. And so my own chapter in this, in this contribution is fundamentally looking at these moments of kind of very specific history in the campaign of a particular um, project, of a particular text. Thank you so much to both Regina Seiwald and Ed Wollens for this uh, super insightful conversation. Where can people find out more about your work? We have both, through, through chance, I think, we've both um, got contributions to a recent publication, also with the Greuter, Paratextualizing Games. My own chapter in there is exploring the shift in advertising rhetoric as we go through the life cycle of a game platform. So how we move from introducing the platform and then introducing games for that platform specifically and looking at the kind of the tension between the two aesthetic modes within that. That's where you can find kind of the, the precursor, I guess you could say, to this to this book. And our, our forthcoming work is, is coming out. Again, it's on the, on the website. It's as part of the Digital Humanities series. There is a link somewhere. There's a website link which has lots of numbers in it that I can't recite. Um, so that's that's primarily where you can find most of our most of my work at least. Yes, and my, my chapter in that collection is about um, the ludic nature of paratex themselves, so how paratex can actually be quite playful so that they reflect our ludic engagement with the game in the paratex themselves. So that, that's a really interesting collection and, and many of our esteemed colleagues have contributed to that collection as well, which can be found in or published by Transcript. Um, so. It's a free, downloadable, open source document. So head over to the transcript site and get your copy. Um, really worth a read. Right. Once again, thank you, Regina Saivad and Ed Wallens for coming to the Keywords in Play podcast and looking forward to your co-edited book. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Keywords in Play. For more great ideas around games, check out criticaldistance.com or take a dive into the Digra archives at digra.org.